The IRS, among other things, obligates $2.5 billion a year in contract spending. Strangely, one of the most common but important questions in the contracting process is actually hard to answer. Namely, when will a contract be signed by a contracting officer? Now the IRS procurement shop has developed a web app that produces a prediction for how they did it and why it matters. We turn to the Director of Analytics Research and Technology in the Chief Procurement Officer's office, Alicia Miller. Ms. Miller, good to have you on. Great. It's nice to be here. So we've heard about procurement lead time, the PALT question, and there's lots of questions about the vagaries of procurement. But signing a contract, why is that difficult to know when? And well, first of all, why is that? Sure. There's a long process that goes into making contracts happen. And at the end of the day, it really does require us to get that contract signed before we can get critical work to start. But because of the process and the length of time it takes to actually execute this, there does leave that question of when will we be able to start work? So the process that we underwent to model and develop this application was largely oriented around how can we better help customers plan work? How can we even better help our staff understand when those final contract documents are going to be signed to allow for that business planning? Well, if I have a program and I need a contract to help fulfill it, I go to the contracting shop because only a contracting officer can actually execute a contract on behalf of the government. Why can't I, as the program manager, just pick up the phone and say, hey, Alicia, when are you going to sign that? (laughs) And we do get that as well. So historically, this is exactly how it happened is there would be a phone call and say, hey, when is this going to happen? And then, you know, our contracting officer might just pick out a date and say maybe sometime around March. But there's different things that have to happen in the process. And so what we wanted to do is say, you know, this is a gut instinct. Can we use data to more consistently be able to say, based on what factors, this is when it's going to happen? Can we make this more accessible so that you're not just calling our contracting officer, especially in their busiest time of year at the end of the year when they are working through a lot of things? Can we provide a way for our customers to go in and self-service to get some of this information? And what are some of the data elements that go into this then? Sure. So we were able to pull data out of our internal contracting writing system, as well as the federal procurement data. But you can go in and you can look at a lot of different factors. So we can look at, for instance, the dollar value. When we look at the dollar value, there's different levels of review and signatures that go into things. There's more process handling time that might happen. We also look at workload. If you have a lot on your plate, then it's going to take longer to handle that than it does something shorter. So looking at a variety of these kind of factors, uh, we were able to see how much these influence the potential signing date. So is the implication behind this that there are steps leading to the point when a contract is signable? And those are what you're really looking at, not whether it's ready to be signed and the contracting officer decides, well, I'll just do that one on Wednesday. Once it's ready, they'll sign it, right? Absolutely. There's different steps in the process, but also certain other factors that might influence these outcomes. And I imagine this information is also important to contractors as well, right? They know they're going to get a contract. Presumably, they have won the bid or they've won the task order. And so they probably want to know when they can start work, too. They've got a lot of planning to do. Absolutely. Now, our web app right now that we've developed, it's being made operational inside the IRS. So it is going to be something that we can use internally. It will not be accessible to external vendors to get this information. Got it. We're speaking with Alicia Miller. She's Director of Analytics Research and Technology in the Chief Procurement Office at the IRS. If a vendor were to call and say, 
what does the crystal ball that you have say about the contract? You can tell them that's okay? Well, we can tell them the prediction. Obviously, with any data, there's going to be a range. And so right now, we have, looking at the data, nearly 90% predictive accuracy for within 30 days. So this is not going to say, you know, here's going to be the exact date. There's going to be a range, but we can give you this ballpark. And what about delays and appropriations, which is pretty much routine now for Congress and the government? Does that play into when something can be signed? Because that does obligate funds, and you can't really do that without an appropriation. It gets into the whole legal and anti-deficiency business. Is that part of the equation here? That's not one of the factors that we include in the model, but that is certainly a consideration for our purposes. You know, we'd expect a lot of the contract requests would come in with appropriate funding. So it would come in after we do have our signed budget, the money is available, and then we move forward with the process. And you are the director of analytics, research, and technology. What are some of the other types of things you tend to work on? So we have a really fantastic team that focuses on the data systems inside, looking at analytics, as well as helping with tools. So this is one of the examples of tools that we're using, but we've also been able to implement and test various different automation processes that are helping us to make sure that, you know, we can look at, are we implementing all of the right clauses that needed to be in contracts? Are we uploading information to our right folder management processes? And so being able to look at not just the analytics side, but also looking at how can we improve our processes. We're looking at that full spectrum. Yes, because contract writing systems are where these clauses get inserted, right? And I guess there's growing realization that you don't need every clause in every contract because it's confusing both to the agency and to the contractors. And I guess I'm asking, is there some kind of automated way to determine which contracts need to drop in, which need to be left out? And that's absolutely the type of stuff that we're working on. Alicia Miller is Director of Analytics Research and Technology in the Chief Procurement Office at the IRS. Thanks so much for joining me. You're very welcome. You all have a great day. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy 
that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? 
You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've 
got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.